Namoetasa Bagua to Rahatu Sama Sambutasa Namoetasa Bagua to Rahatu Sama Sambutasa Namoetasa so it feels like a very auspicious occasion, the full moon, one of the two Asala Pujas that we're having this year. <laughs> so this, this full moon is a very special one because it's the demarcation of people entering the rainy season retreat in monasteries. And because of the, um, the, the, the way the lunar calendar is, occasionally they have an extra month and so this year, the Sri Lankan rainy season begins tonight, and in uh, the Thai rainy season begins next full moon. So we can have um, lots of celebrations, which is lovely. But it's also very rare that I'm in a situation where I'm giving a Dharma reflection and my mom is here. So that's very auspicious. And, you know, I, I'm here for an extended stay because of the fires in Colorado, and my hermitage is safe, and, um, and you know, the people that I know have not been harmed and haven't lost their homes. And when I was looking at the... My brother sent me a link of a time-lapsed photograph series of the fire. You know, I was... Um, I noticed my system um, was experiencing quite a lot of um, emotion. It was it was quite extraordinary to watch the the, the inferno of it and the the way that it progressed and the intensity of it and the smoke that was generated from it. So I have the great good fortune that I I'm okay. The hermitage okay. The people that I know are okay, and and I've landed in a, a little deva realm with two very dedicated practitioners here in a house that's set up a little bit like a retreat center where they have meditations here and at Frank's house and other people's house they meet together regularly and share meditation. And so, you know, to have people who are dedicated to practice like that living in the city is rare. I don't know many people who are doing that. So, it's, you know, it's, it's a real blessing for me to be in such extraordinary good company and um, have good fortune in that way. Tonight also is the evening of 4th of July, which is very interesting, you know, to contemplate, um, you know, independence and what that means. And before, as I was saying, um, we did the, the Dhamma Chaka Pawatana Sutta, which is the, the, the chanting of the Four Noble Truths, which is the Buddha's first sermon. And so tonight I want to um, weave a little bit of the themes of, you know, independence. What are we independent of? What is independence? What is interdependence? And how that is relating to the Four Noble Truths and the way that we need to practice and see what comes with that. So, you know, when I reflect on, you know, Fourth of July independence, obviously that's a, that's a national holiday that celebrates the... Um, the, f- the, the time when this country was officially separate from England. And so we were, we were independent of, you know, terrible 
he taxes and being under you know the British royal thumb and you know trying to find a way that made sense for as a country to move forward in a new land and you know the ethos of independence is certainly um, something that's taken a deep um, rooting in our culture in our psyches in our in our in our land, in the way we look at things, in the way we value things. And so, you know, what's also interesting is is that we're in a room with people from different ethnic origins. We're not just North Americans here. And so when we are uh, looking at our own American identity and the cultural values that we have, and we have some mirroring or context that other cultures actually look at things quite differently, it can help highlight how we see things and the, um, the way we can attach to those values or views and take them to be um, immutable truths. So earlier today I was talking with mom and I was saying that you know one of the things that was fascinating for me about traveling to different countries around the world and teaching meditation was is that in the United States I came across people who found or felt or seemed to believe that the cultural values that they had were, were um, eternal truths. There wasn't as much perspective that it was a cultural value in this context in North America held by American-born North Americans as it was in other countries and other cultures. So in other contexts, people... Um, for some reason, can see these things as cultural values and, and, and maybe be a little bit less um, attached or identified with them. So, you know, one of the, the teachings that the Buddha gave, which was distinguishing uh, Buddhist teachings from other teachings, so I have a belief that there's often uh, a lot more commonality in different faiths in the way that they're practicing than differences in some ways. In terms of philosophical views, there's certainly lots of differences. But when you talk about morality and ethics and kindness and generosity and concentration and right living and service and um, community support and renunciation, and um, these are all things that many different religions have in common. The actual belief systems of, you know, creation ideology or, you know, what God is or, you know, this is where sometimes things um, look different in terms of different philosophies and in different languages. But one of the distinguishing features of the Buddhist teachings is the Four Noble Truths. And the reason why that is a, uh, a teaching which differentiates um, the Buddhist teachings and the Buddhist way or Buddhist path from other paths is because it doesn't even enter into the conversation about whether there's a God or not a God. What it's talking about is, is that the path is a middle path of avoiding extremes. You know, it, you know, we're not going to find a happiness and salvation through indulging our desires or through um, mortification. And the importance of understanding this is, is that it gives us a ground to be able to investigate the truth of what is actually happening. 
So the way the Buddha described things was, you know, he didn't talk about bliss as the first thing. Well, in fact, he tried, and then he learned from, um, he's a quick learner, he learned quite quickly that it didn't work. After his enlightenment in Bodh Gaya, he, he was um, filled with the bliss of, of that experience and the gratitude of the conditions that gave rise to that. And, and he was trying to figure out what he should do and where he should go and who he should teach. And so, you know, he was looking and, and, and the teachers who had helped him on his path were no longer living. So he decided he was going to set out and try and speak to the five ascetics that he started practicing with. And on the way, he met a wanderer. And the wanderer asked him, you know, so who are you? And the Buddha said, well, I am the all-wise, completely enlightened one, you know? It's like, I've got it sussed. I've got it sorted. You know, I'm there. I've arrived. And this wanderer said, well, great. See you later. (laughs) And so that interaction, which was very, very brief, then became a kind of template where the Buddha didn't very rarely spoke about the magnificence of his own awakening. And he talked about it as a very practical path of what you need to look at in order to to see clearly, in order to get the energy to practice, in order to be free like he was. So when he went to um, uh, the Deer Park, he found the five ascetics. And the five ascetics were not interested in welcoming him because when he left to go do the practice um, away from them, you know, they thought he was a write-off. They thought he had fallen back into the, into the hedonistic way of eating food. You know, he wasn't tormenting himself in the, with the kind of extreme austere practices that they had been engaged in. And so they had made an agreement that if he came back, they were going to ignore him. But they couldn't ignore him because the, his countenance was so luminous and so peaceful that in spite of the agreement that they had made beforehand, they set out a seat, they gathered around, and they listened. And what he then described or talked to them about was the same exact thing that we just chanted before you arrived this evening, which was this Four Noble Truths. So the Four Noble Truths are laid out that there's a truth of suffering, that there's a cause of suffering, there's a cessation of suffering, and there's a path that leads to the cessation of suffering. Now, the truth of suffering sometimes is misinterpreted as that Buddhists are, you know, a bunch of bummers, you know? It's like bad news. It's like, you know, the truth of suffering is some kind of a, of a, of a, of a statement about the totality of life, that everything categorically under all circumstances is a drag. And that is not... That is not what the Buddha intended. That is not the first noble truth. The first noble truth is is that there is suffering, that it exists, and that we can see it in our bodies, we can see it getting older, we can see it in sickness, we can see it in a process of death. We can see it when we don't have what we want. 
And we can see it when we lose what we want or what we love or what we cherish or when we lose the people who are dear to us, you know. And then the Buddha went on to say that even the subtlety of the khandas, the, the way the body and mind are configured through our bodies and our perceptions and our feelings and the, and the thoughts and the associations that we have with them, even if we look at it in those kind of ways, if we have a clear enough seeing, we can see that in those aggregates themselves there is suffering. There isn't anything other than suffering in the aggregates themselves. So when we can see that there is suffering in this world, then the next noble truth is, is that there's a cause of suffering. Okay? So the point of seeing suffering is then to focus the mind on the cause. And what the Buddha was describing is, is, is that unlike the way we practice in our American culture where we tend to love to blame, if we're upset, we like to find somebody else responsible, is, is that the Buddha was saying that if there's suffering, there's a way of bringing attention directly into the suffering so that we can locate the cause. The cause is not an external cause, it's an internal one. And if we look carefully, we can see, or the, the question would be, see if it is possible to find that there is another reason for suffering other than wanting things to be different than the way they are. You know? Is there something else that you can actually find that's the cause of suffering? And so when we understand the many different ways that suffering arises and we see the cause fundamentally is the desire to have them be different from the way they are, then right there, precisely, exactly where we feel the greatest distress and the greatest grief and the greatest desire is where we can experience the greatest sensation. Because it is not in the thing itself having to change. It's in changing our fundamental relationship with it. So we can see, you know, our bodies get older, you know. And I, I, I laugh when mom notices that I've got gray hairs, because I've had gray hairs for a long time. So I am getting older. We're all getting older. None of us are getting younger. We're all getting older. And I can notice there's things, you know, I've got a little bit of arthritis and I've got some stuff that I can notice. I didn't have arthritis when I was 20 and 30 and 40. You know, I didn't have arthritis then. So I can notice the aging process in my body. And I can experience um, whatever I experience about it. But if I'm holding on to the idea that I should be young or that there's, you know, something terrible about having arthritis or having gray hairs is somehow a catastrophe, then, then there'll be an additional suffering on top of the natural aging process, which is not something that I have much control over. So when I'm aware of the the holding on to things, the wanting things to stay, the not wanting things to change, the wishing things would be otherwise. And I bring my attention right to that wanting. Then the wanting can soften 
and when the wanting softens, the suffering eases up. Okay? So, you know, when I heard about the fire in Colorado, I posted something, and my friend Tanisra was teaching a retreat, and she said she was going to dedicate the chanting and the, and the retreat, the talk, to the to the safety of the hermitage. And I just welled up with tears because I wasn't aware of how vulnerable I felt. I wasn't aware of the, you know, the prospects of if the hermitage burned down, the kind of once again being homeless, you know, and the kind of, you know, I've been in that circumstance a lot in the last while, and how grateful I was to have a place where I could unpack and have my things and returned and have a key, you know, and know that it works okay. And so in that moment of her sharing blessings to, as a gesture of friendship and care and kindness, independent of whether that had anything to do with actually protecting the hermitage, I could tell my vulnerability. And, you know, I just welled up with tears. And I was not aware that I was vulnerable about it. I I didn't have any sense that the fire was affecting me until I could feel my own reaction. So I brought my attention immediately to the vulnerability and to that wanting security, wanting safety, wanting to have a home that works, wanting to have a place that I can unpack, wanting to have a place that I know I can be in and be okay. And I stayed with that. And I stayed with the wanting until it released. Now, this has been my practice. So I'm like, this is what I do, you know. I bring my attention exactly where the suffering is, and I hold attention there until it releases. And when it releases, there's a sense of ease. And so the ease that came was not conditioned on the hermitage not burning down. The ease that came was an ease that... I was okay whether or not the hermitage was going to be safe or not. It was like, the ease was, if the whole thing is torched, if everything there is gone, I'm okay. I'll be okay. Okay? So my sense of of well-being was not dependent on the hermitage being okay. It was not dependent on the prayer working and the fire not coming. It was a different kind of happiness. It was a different kind of peace. And so the practice is aimed at helping us develop a little bit of ease with the kind of finding less suffering in our world, moving that into a a greater sense of ease where we're actually no longer dependent on the thing that we initially thought we were grasping at. And then it brings us into a kind of a, of a, of a more of a, of a peace. You know, it was quite extraordinary for me to have time with Maureen the day before she died. I mean, it's an extraordinary privilege to be invited to somebody in their dying process and to share with them um, because it's so intimate. And it's like, it's a total bullshit free zone. There's no time for crap, you know? There's no time for nonsense. You've got just a little bit of time, and I knew 
with pretty much certainty this was the last time I was going to see her. She was going to be dying very soon, you know? And here you have a human being who is 60-something years old and strong in her continence, and her body has um, been ravaged by an illness, and she's gone through a process where she's clear. I looked in her eyes, and she was luminous. She was peaceful. She was clear. She was resolved. She was at ease. She was at peace. And so this is an example of a person, and I have no idea what her internal workings were, but her happiness was not dependent on her body being alive. Her internal happiness had resolved so that she was comfortable and at peace, knowing that very soon she would be dying. This kind of understanding is really what the practice is all about. We practice so that we are not dependent on anything for our happiness, including our own life, including our body. So there's the first noble truth, which talks about suffering, and certainly we don't need to look far in order to see that. You know, it's everywhere. And there's a whole mm, skill in learning how to bring one's attention to the suffering, not so that we can wallow in it, but so that we can begin to see how deeply we want it to be otherwise. Because when we see how deeply we want it to be otherwise, then right there, we can experience release. We want the coffee, we want strawberries, we want the weather to be cool, we want the weather to be warm, we don't want it to rain, we want it to be hot, we want it to be too hot. You don't want these crazy politicians to be running because they're idiots. You know, our world is filled with wanting and not wanting. And I can certainly have a sense of, well, with some of these things, you know, the politicians that are running, I find a certain amount of terror when I really contemplate the realistic possibility of one of these people actually being a president. You know, it's frightening for me, the consequences of the effect that it will have, okay? But I know on a, on, a, on a deeper level, on a moment-to-moment level, that, that there's a way of, of working with that in my own mind where I can see the wanting to have leadership that is, has values and an intelligence that I can recognize and make some sense. And I can also see that my, my happiness in this moment if I tie it into that, then I am, I am creating a circumstance where my happiness is dependent on something that is totally out of my control. So there is this interesting kind of juxtaposition of we are absolutely affected by the political circumstances we are in, and it is of our best interest to work towards creating political systems that are supportive of values that um, 
are in everybody's best interest. And as an individual person, there's an individual freedom that I can experience independent of that. Okay? Which doesn't mean that I condone political systems that I don't agree with. It doesn't mean that I don't speak up in communities about stuff that isn't correct. But I know that my ultimate happiness cannot be located there. So the first noble truth of suffering then can help us focus on what are we wanting and what are we not wanting. And when we become focused on that, then our ability is to be able to bring our attention right there so that we can experience the release. And that release doesn't mean that we stop being engaged in ways that make sense to us. It means that we continue to be engaged, but we're not attached to the outcome in the same way that we were before we understood our own connection to our own desire. In fact, the people who are absolutely fearless are the ones who have completely let go. They are prepared to sacrifice anything and everything because it's not coming from desire. It's coming from compassion and wisdom. So the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering, is really what this is all about. It's not about Buddhism as bad news. It's about Buddhism is allowing us to see things in a way that brings us to a freedom that is not dependent on all of these conditions that are totally out of our control. So our bodies do get older, and after a certain point, they begin to fall apart, and it's like it's a drag, you know? But the real drag is not the body falling apart. That's natural. The real drag is this desperate longing for it not to be that way, or the sense of shame, or the embarrassment, or the sense of limitation that we can't go out and do what we like to do because of whatever, you know, the limitations. It's the not wanting the old age that is the real drag. And so when we see that, we can begin to focus our attention where our real angst is, and it can release. And then we can bring attention and our energy to where we need to put it. To how to live in a way so that there's more ease and joy and care and compassion and understanding. That we're not getting tripped up or tripped out. So that, you know, our life can be full and rich. And if, like Maureen, at 60-something years old, it's time to go. You know, she did everything she could. She fought as hard as she could fight. And it's time to go. And she orchestrated her endgame with such extraordinary grace. Not just because she was able to have closure with everybody in her family, but to see somebody on their deathbed, that level of luminosity and joy that level of peace to me that is a genuine accomplishment that is wonderful so I don't know her well enough to know what her practice is or what she was doing with her internal landscape but to me that's a telltale sign she was doing a lot right you know That is fabulous. 
So the fourth noble truth is the path. And the path are all the conducive conditions that help support us so that we can actually bring our minds and our focus and our attention to do this work, to focus on the suffering so that we can focus on the cause, so that we can realize the sensation. So this peace, which is a peace that takes us into an independence, also then supports us understanding our interdependence. It's an irony. The more independent we are, the more interdependent we are functioning. The more we realize all of the conditions that are conducive, that supports our ability to realize an an independence that's not, our happiness is not based on other things. It's a paradox. It's an absolute paradox. So in a Buddhist framework, taking the refuges and the precepts is a skillful condition that helps focus the mind on what priorities are. Living in a community of people is a skillful condition that helps people do what they need to do to support each other. You know, So Mom and Sarita are living in the uh, Santa Rosa Creek Commons, and Sayo and Ng and Frank are in this little um, meditators collective. And John is part of a church that has a meditation group. There are many conducive conditions that are helping people to stay on track, to stay committed, to stay motivated, to keep the values in a way that are congruent so that one's life can move towards what's wholesome and move away from what's not wholesome. So there's more peace, more ease, more joy in life. So when I give a Dharma reflection, the assumption that I make when I speak is that I expect nobody to believe a word that I say. And my expectation is, is, is that people listen, and if there's anything that I say that's useful, then to reflect on that. And if you're listening in a way where your body kind of opens and relaxes and releases, you can really trust that. Because there's a kind of somatic resonance with the truth. You know, that's something to really pay attention to. You know, and if it doesn't work for you or you don't understand it, let it go. You know? So this is a a reflection. It's not meant to be an indoctrination. It's meant that people take these words and consider how they are experienced individually. How do you feel? What? How does this relate to your own experience? Does it resonate? Does it not resonate? Are there places that work a little bit? Maybe there's some question. And the so, wonder to me is that as you practice the Eightfold Path and get more skilled in doing so, that uh, although uh, nothing particularly outside may change that much, inside the door opens to ever greater beauty and blessing and peace and happiness, boundlessly it seems like sometimes, you know. And uh, I don't know whether we don't talk about that enough or whether it should never be mentioned or whether it should be surprised. But it's a wonder to me. 
wonder to you. Why is it a wonder to you, John? Because it's so far from the common everyday expectations and experience of most people have. That's why it's such a wonder that uh, it's a surprise in a sense. Maybe I'm a pessimist and I think I shouldn't be uh, surprised in that way. I don't know. People concentrate on so much how hard it is to do this teaching, how hard it is to live up to that teaching, and how hard it is to think in this way or that way or the other way, and uh, that's altogether different than just opening up and saying, like, God is beautiful, it is, kind of thing, and, and uh, it can't help but be a surprise, so many folks don't get that, many do, more than we think, I think, but it's amazing. Very good. It is amazing. It is amazing. And for me, what's amazing is, is that's our essence. You know, that's actually our nature. That you know, that sense of abundant blessing and gratefulness and unconditioned love. That is what's there when everything else falls away. Yes. <laughs> yes, know, the great luminosity. That's right. Left. That's right. And so for me, you know, when I see enormous suffering, you know, and I know that 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 through that suffering or on the other side of that suffering, you know, there's there's this like vast storehouse of a treasure. Yes. You know, like a, a diamond mine. Yes. You know, our light fields, you know, such beauty, such incredible love. Well, you teach it very beautifully. You know, I feel a sadness. It's like somebody's sitting on top of a diamond diamond treasure trove and they're they're fiddling with the dust on the box. You know. So are there thoughts or questions or comments or Reactions? I think we should have taped it and take it back to the comments. <laughs> it is taped. That's right, it is taped. Uh, I mean, it makes so much sense to how much we suffer for mm-hmm. no reason. I mean, we think we have a reason, but... Sarita, is this new for you? No. No. And um, the notion of going into the suffering is something uh, I've experienced certainly various times of, of really um, not resisting it, <laughs> and when you, and also when you realize that it's that it's a human condition, that it's not your own personal drama as much <laughs> as you think. <laughs> yeah, that's a huge shift that this is actually something we share with six billion others. Yeah, and it sort of opens your heart to a lot of compassion. Yeah, yeah. And in the history of humans. Yeah, yeah. But I think, you know, the sense of when a person really understands this and lives this, there's a, there's a quality about them that sometimes is discernible. 
you know, so when I when I met Deepama, even though I had met other masters before, her presence really had an impact on me. And I think I think because maybe because of you know she was a woman, and and the way her her the way her expression of love I mean of of wisdom manifested was unconditioned love. You know, and you know when I met Tangpulu Saida, who was who is known to be a fully accomplished, completely awakened being, I walked into the room and I just started weeping. I mean, he didn't say anything. He was just sitting there. But to have the experience of somebody who's that empty, you know, there was just this, I don't know, there's like nobody home. I mean, he was seeing me. He was, you know, he was... But there was nothing, nothing, there was like, there was no place for the dust to land, you know? But the connection with Deepama, because, because her manifestation was so profoundly loving, it touched me in a, in a, in a different way. So she, was, she wasn't completely enlightened. She was one notch beneath that. But she had all of the... Uh, attainments of all of the different powers that you can have but what you got from her presence was this stillness and this infinite love and to me yeah it's like well yeah you know that was so um, affirming of my own understanding of the way for me wisdom and love are two sides of the same thing when there's profound wisdom for me, it was obvious that there would be profound love. I mean, different people will manifest things in different ways, but that for me was an obvious connection. It was very affirming. So meeting people like that, you know, meeting very sincere practitioners or meeting people who are realized, it's just, it's, um, it's like, wow, it gives you perspective about, you know, what is possible in this life, what we can actually do with our lives. You know, I feel just so much gratitude that I've had um, an, a, an ability to have contact with these people and live a life that is conducive for waking up. You know, and it's it is it. Sometimes it's really weird being a nun in North America on my own without other monastics around me, because it's like you know, there's there's a torrent moving in one direction. And then sometimes I think, you know, I feel actually quite normal, you know, where peace and care and kindness and respect and simplicity, that actually feels quite normal. What are you guys all doing? Anyway, we were going to go for a walk, but maybe, um, are you up for a walk? No. I'm going to have to leave, too, because I've got a son at home who doesn't know where I am, and uh, the dog who would love to go to the moon would walk, but he doesn't know where I am either. But, It'll be uh, a beautiful night. Yeah. I'm so happy that I came, and didn't want to thank you so much. Oh, pleasure. I'm very grateful that we're able to do this. You know, if if, if things were otherwise, you know, we, I one of the things that I really love about my little hermitage is it's within walking distance to the Garden of the Gods, which is a spectacular rock formation. It's just 10 minutes away.
to the back side of the garden of the gods. So what I've been doing in the summertime is have full moon meditation vigils. And we start at between six or so, and we finish around midnight. And we, we go for a two-hour walk under the full moon in the garden. And it's, it's, it's glorious. It's, it's, it's like you are in a, a, a cathedral illuminated by the moon. And not always, but a number of the times we walk in silence for two hours. And then we come back, and the conversation is like, it's so alive and intimate and real. It's just, I just love that. I so love that. But the Garden of the Gods is still closed. I'm here. But we have Annandale Park, which is not so far away. So we can go for our own little Annandale version. But thank you so much for coming. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.